0: An issue for all women.
1: Hello, tis I, Jen, here to tell you about this episode of The Sunday Chops. This is one of two episodes today. The other one is the fourth part of our Let's Talk About Death series, which we've been running in partnership with Macmillan Cancer Support. And in that, Mickey is going to be chatting to Lucy Rudd, an end of care life advisor for Macmillan. So that is worth a listen. In this episode, I am chatting to non-writer, as she's about to tell you, but actual writer of the fantastically titled play My Mum's a Twat, Anushka Warden, which is a play about Anushka's mum joining a cult when she was 12. So pretty interesting stuff. And indeed, the story about how the play came about in the first place is pretty interesting. We chatted about all of that, about being a resilient teenager, a little bit about gangster rap, obviously. And also, if you didn't catch this week's podzine, It's an Edinburgh special, so you can hear from a squillion, well, five brilliant women who we love, who are up at the fringe being comedy geniuses this year. We chatted to Callie Beaton, Jess Q, Desiree Birch, Laura Lex, and Tiff Stevenson. And they're all absolutely awesome, so please do give that a listen as well. And go and see their shows, and go and see Anoushka's show too. But for now, back to this podcast, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm joined by Anushka Warden, writer and performer of the one woman show My Mum's a Twat. Anushka, hello. Hello. Hi. We're going to come back to the name because it is a sensational name. But first of all, can you tell us a little bit about what the show is about, please?
0: It is a one person play about a girl who loses her mum to a cult when she's 12 and just her sort of resilience and, like, naughty teenageness that gets her her through this sort of quite weird life event.
1: And it's based on personal experience, right?
0: Yes, yeah. At the beginning of the play, the play text, it says, based on a true story but told through hazy memory and vivid imagination, and, yeah, that's basically what it is. I don't actually have a very good memory. I don't really have a very good memory of that time. So a lot of what I've written is just the, you know, the fun, excited, embellished storytelling way which maybe that's what all writers do.
1: Creative license, isn't it? What can you remember about that time and and what kind of things do you draw on?
0: I have a really bad memory, but I'm really organised because I always have, like, notebooks. So in life now, you would not know I had a bad memory because anything that's important I write down and it's dealt with, yeah, I've never really worried about not remembering stuff, and then it's that thing where, like, family tell you stories, so you're like, I do have a memory, and then you're like, oh, maybe not, maybe my sister just told me that, so weirdly, even though I wrote it, and it's sort of my own life, I'm sort of approaching it like a performer, I wouldn't want to say actor, because I'm not... But I'm just sort of... When a friend tells you a story and then the next night you tell a different friend that friend's story, it's like that thing. It's not your story to tell, but you embody it or whatever. It sort of is your story. <laughs> yeah. But I think maybe because it was on already and I had a rehearsal process and the actress Patsy Fran played it, so I was in rehearsals as a writer for three weeks, so maybe any sort of real-life feelings and stuff, maybe that all came out then. So now, in a nice way, it just sort of feels a bit like pieces of paper.
1: So it's based on your own experience, but it is also, as you say, sort of embellished creative licence and stories from within your family and things like that. Is the character much like you? Oh, yeah, yeah. She's basically my kind of personality.
0: Essentially, it's a girl who bad stuff happens to her and she's just without meaning to be just very sort of badass and resilient. But it's that interesting thing when someone's young and they're just, I guess that's personality or something. But the choices that she makes, she's okay as an adult because some of the things that, how she reacts to some of the weird things that happened when she was younger.
1: So what kind of weird things can we sort of expect to, without, you know, giving away too many spoilers?
0: imagine you are sort of 12 years old. You've got quite cool. You've got a few friends at school who uh, think that you're quite cool and they're starting to ring ring your house to like see if you want to hang out. But at this time, your mum's just become like an official healer because she's passed like some exams so she is now officially a healer. So you've got to stop answering the phone with like the usual thing which is like 31367 hello. And now me and my sister... And my mum now have to answer the phone with, hello, the Heal-Thyself Centre for Self-Realisation and Transcendence, how may I help you? Like, it's embarrassing. You're like, dude, don't call me tonight, um, I'll call you.
1: I miss that, people answering the phone. Not like that, <laughs> my mum didn't do that, but, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> Um So your mum was in a cult.
0: What might be tricky about the word cult is I suppose someone who's in one wouldn't necessarily call it one. Yeah. I think an organization that basically makes a person hand over all of their finances, my own personal description of that would be a cult. So I would say that. But yeah, they're not like they weren't massive. There was only about 15 of them, but essentially they they did that.
1: What do you see? With what you're sort of talking about in this, obviously you're talking about yourself and your experience of being a teenager, and we'll come back to that in a minute, but the thoughts you had about what your mum was up to at that time, do you see any sort of similarities between that and, like, the shit that is going on in the bin fire of the world that is today?
0: I hadn't actually had that thought myself, but thinking about it now it's really interesting. I think the thing that I think is really clear is I think people can be quite dismissive and be like, that person's got a problem with this, that person's been susceptible to that. But actually, I honestly think any of us at the wrong time with the wrong circumstances can be vulnerable to something like a cult or following the wrong leader. And so for that reason, it's all just very human, isn't it? And we're in a particularly shit time and some shit humans are leading
1: stuff where other maybe
0: vulnerable people are following.
1: There's quite a famous example of an entire country <laughs> uh, yes. fall into that shit, but let's, uh, well, it's quite a few. So I want to go back to the teenage thing. So the description of this show on the Edinburgh Fringe website is teen-spirited, gangster rap fueled survival guide. Where does the gangster rap come from?
0: Yeah, my mum moved to Canada when I was, like, 12 or 13 and then I had to start going and spending my school holidays over there and I was like oh, what the fuck I don't want to go to Canada I want to stay here and like, get it on with my boyfriend it's bullshit um, and I went to Canada and it was literally the best place I'd ever been in my life because there were like loads of boys who thought like I was really hot because I could pronounce my T's. Fucking great. And basically, where they were on the west coast um, of Vancouver, everyone was massively into gangster rap. Now, I was from Devon. We literally had like Muse. I didn't know what gangster rap was. It was so amazing. And like, because they can drive when they were 16, I would be like in cars with boys listening to gangster rap, driving around. I was like, this is it. This is the life. And then basically, I just like genuinely got really into it. But what was interesting was it was around the time that obviously I was missing my mum when I wouldn't be leaving. And I'd remember all the girls in my year would listen to, like, Celine Dion or something, knobbing on about how sad life is and blah, blah, blah. And I would be, like, listening to Tupac being like, first off, fuck you, bitch. I loved it. I would like to caveat that I totally know that gangster rap is full of loads of, like, misogynistic themes and stuff. But actually it makes me feel really empowered.
1: I, despite being a middle class white girl from semi rural Essex, grew up uh, with quite an affection for gangster rap myself. What kind of era are we okay, talking? Great. Hold on. Let's do this. Okay. Pick your five best
0: rappers. Oh. And if one of them is the same as mine, I, I can't hold my shit together. So, first for me, two pack Ice Cube. It's oh, good. Biggie. Dr. Dre. Very good. DMX would be my next one. Jay Z. Good. Interesting. My Interesting. My fourth one would be Master P. Oh, my God. If, you, if you're if you listening and you haven't listened to Master P, he's got this thing where he goes, that's how you know it's a Master P song. Go and listen to it. You're welcome. Yours are, like, proper. Yeah, come on. What's your fourth one? Most Deaf. Very good. That is a good one. What's my last one? It's got to be really good. I really like Naz and Mob Deep and D12.
1: Okay, that's more than five. Do I have to have a fifth now? Oh, Snoop, yeah, obviously Snoop, yeah. Do you think that's because, well, it's a bit of a rebellion, isn't it? I was chatting to someone about about NWA, right? Yeah. And how the fact that if that means something to me as a middle-class white girl from semi-rural Essex, because it's protest music, basically, that's why it means something to me. That's quite amazing, really, if that can mean something to so many people.
0: I don't think I'm that deep. Basically, (laughs) I didn't even read newspapers properly, not joking, until I was like in my mid 20s. Even now, I don't really properly. But for me, it wasn't even like a choice. It was just all around. That's all they did was listen to that and then go to like house parties. That was it. So it was actually just at the right age when I would have discovered something musically. It happened
1: to be that. This was on at the Royal Court back in 2018. How did it come about in the first place? Because you're, you actually work in PR, right?
0: Yeah, my real job is I'm head of press at the Royal Court Theatre, the best theatre in the world. Uh, that's me saying it, not the PR me. And I've worked like in theatre arts admin for like 10 or whatever years and I have never, ever, ever been interested in writing. I couldn't have given a shit. I'd never tried to write anything. I did go to drama school and, like, did acting for a bit when I first left, but was like, oh, my God, I might have to, go, like, go and do theatre in education, forget that shit, and I got, like, a proper job. But then, obviously, I've always enjoyed theatre. And then I got my... I had a press job at the Royal Court, but I'd been there as an intern, like, five years before for a year. And I genuinely, for theatre... I'm not really interested in anything that's not new. If I go and see, a, like, a, The Doll's House or whatever, Ibsen, I'm, like, bored. It doesn't matter how great it is. I would rather go and see something new that maybe isn't that good because my brain doesn't know what's going to happen. So working there, which is, like, the new writing theatre, it's just really exciting, and it means, like, doing the PR, you were all the time doing, like, it on, like, topical new stuff because that's essentially what people are writing about. And you have to read a lot of plays, and you're immersed in it. And, like, um, Vicky, my boss, gets people's opinions after first previews, so you can't just sort of work there and not be there. And my theory is that by osmosis, I, like, just needed to suddenly write something, which sounds so weird. It was literally over two weeks, and I just started... just said my mum wasn't always a twat, and then I wrote this thing, and it wasn't a play, it wasn't anything, it was just a story... And I let like, one of my best friends read it, and she works in theatre. And then she was like, no, I think this is a monologue. We could take it like anonymously to Edinburgh, because at the time I was like, I'm really professional. I can't, like, da-da-da. And then, so I was like, cool, let's do that. And then we asked a favour of a director and an actor I know, and they like, just read it out loud the actor did and it was exciting so then we were going to go and do this secret Edinburgh thing so that would have been two years ago and then because Vicky's my boss and I have weekly meetings her, I was like we wanted to do like a week of research and I was like if there's a rehearsal room spare would it be possible to like maybe use it I've written this thing but don't worry I'm not a writer like this this isn't going to change anything da, da, da. I don't need you to read it or anything because I imagine she gets a lot of people just giving her plays all the time but then she was like I have to I'm going to have to read it. And I was like, no, 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 no. Not because I wasn't proud of it, because I was like, no, this is my work life, and this is like my like weird side thing, whatever. And then she read it really quickly. Later that like, week or something, her and my other boss, Lucy Davis, called me into their office. I've never been in trouble at work. I'm quite good at covering my tracks. Anyway, <laughs> they called me in, and they pretended I was in trouble with something. Yeah. And then they were like, only joking. We want to put your play on. And I literally stuck by my fingers up at them and like, What the fuck? Shut up. You've got proper writers that you can be putting their plays on. Don't be dicks. And then they were serious. And it was literally one of the most amazing moments of my life. Being the PR, I knew what it meant to have your play on there. I was just like, fucking hell. This is great.
2: Hi. If you find yourself at the Edinburgh Festival this year looking for something to do, well then look no further. Because we, Standard Issue are putting on four events at The Stand. The best comedy club in the country, if you ask us. On August the 11th and the 12th, we have two in-conversation events where our guests include the brilliant Rosie Jones, Janet Ellis, just the Janet Ellis, Laura Lex, as previously said, Gemma Kearney. I know. And we do have some more people, but we just can't announce them yet. So probably the best thing to do is to get onto our website www let's do it the old way www standardissue and you will see all our live events there you will also see the other two events that we are putting on at the fringe which is two stand-up nights with all female bills they are completely brilliant I can tell you two of the people that will be on, and you have heard them already, Callie Beaton and Jess Q are both on at those shows. And there are, in fact, loads and loads of brilliant women on at those. You will find details of those shows at that website as well. Book yourself a ticket. Come along. It will be great.
1: the Royal Court is super prestigious.
0: Yeah. Weirdly. I don't ever think of that word, I just think important. It's just a, the place where people who have important things to say get to say them. Yeah. And I think that was the thing that was like, oh wow, I was 34, this has been my story my whole life, in a nice way, no one's really given a shit, I mean like in a big way, no one tried to take the cult to court or the police didn't give a shit, it's not the kind of thing you go to the police for is it, oh I think my mum might joining a cult, but it made me feel important, it made that story feel important. And the reason why I was telling it, sort of realised after, was that I wanted it to be like an empowering thing for other young people who might be having, like, shit times in their family for whatever reason in a nice way we don't fucking need them obviously you need something someone but it's fine if your mum is going to go away and you don't get to have your mum there are other ways to do things society tries to make you think that like there aren't but actually there
1: are i have to ask you it is a wonderful name how did the name come about Honestly, as I said, I just sat
0: down and wrote it down. It wasn't... I didn't know it was going to be a play. I didn't know it was going to be a thing. So it wasn't like I have got no solutions about how to create great titles. I guess the fact was it was just honest. I've honestly always thought that, (laughs) that my mum's a twat. But what's interesting is someone said to me the other day... I mean, twat's quite a strong word. But where I grew up with my friends and my older brothers and sisters... I'm the youngest of seven. I've got three older brothers, three older sisters we didn't use it as a really insulting thing but like the honesty of it is you're a twat so you're a bit of a knob Mm. but I think when I see it I'm not like offended so it's I have to remind myself that it might be offensive to some people also a twat can be annoying and they can upset you anyone listening there's a chance that if you're a twat you could be redeemed it could be all right Whereas if you're a cunt, you've probably got no hope.
1: How does your mum feel about the name of the play?
0: I mean, my mum still lives in Canada and she doesn't really engage in the world in the same way that I do, like, online or this or that. But because I'm not a twat, I did... I had a responsibility to tell her about it when it was going to go on and I just really downplayed it because she doesn't really know the theatre scene over here so I was like oh just some little theatre is going gonna put it on and just so you know the title's called my mum's a twat and and she just said she's very supportive in her sort of funny sort of way firstly she said oh is twat a real word and I said I guess like it wasn't at some point and then she said is it a bit like twit and I was like yeah sure it can be like that yeah. And then basically she just said, because she's a counsellor and she like heals people and this and that. And she said in true sort of counselling form, she said, I just think it's really great that you've found an outlet to do some of the stuff you were unhappy about. So I was like, "Okay, cool. Yeah, it's weird.
1: You are going up to Edinburgh. You're starting on July the 31st. How are you feeling about it all?
0: Weird. I think I just feel really weird. Oh, God. Yeah, I feel lots of things. Patsy's amazing, the person who did it at the Royal Court. And then she won a flipping Olivier Award. So she's, like, actually an Olivier Award-winning actress. I am someone who has sat at a desk for, like, ten years. The director keeps being like, you've got a lot of tension in your shoulders. I'm like, I know. I've typed for, like, ten years. I don't really believe it's happening, even though obviously it is because I'm now on sabbatical for my job. It's just some weird like, challenge I gave myself. It's sort of a bit mad because in September I'm just going to go back to my job. But it's something about I just wanted to be the teller of my own story for kind of empowering reasons rather than therapy reasons. I want someone somewhere in the audience, even if it's just like one person a day, ideally someone who's younger, to feel braver from maybe hearing this. Because I think if I had heard this story when I was younger, maybe it just would have even helped even more.
1: So this is it. Do you have any plans to write anything else?
0: After it was on at the Royal Court, loads of TV companies wanted to meet with me. I think this happens maybe like with any new writer at certain theatres. As I said, I never really wanted to be a writer, so I didn't, in a nice way, really give a shit. But I always felt that this story be told really amusingly in another way oh yeah to point out maybe if it wasn't clear it is like more funny than sad I wouldn't want to call it a comedy because then you're like where's the laughs but I think it is quite funny and then I knew I sort of could see it in like a tv thing so I applied for a channel Four thing that they do every year called Four screenwriting and I got that off the back of this play and then they basically taught me how to write tv script everybody else there it was all like we're all here together and no one knows how to do it That was a lie. They had all written, like, loads of TV stuff. Okay, none of it had gone on. But, oh, when I wrote my fifth screenplay, I didn't even know how to write. So I was writing a scene where someone wasn't on the camera and I had to ring up my script editor and be like, what do you say when someone's saying something from off off camera? And they were like, you just put in brackets off camera and I was like oh, thanks so I did that and that taught me like more than I learnt at uni and then after that at the end of that you had to have like a 30 minute piece of like writing for TV and I created this thing called Devon Girl about this like badass teenager like very different from my mum's twat but more like superhero-y kind of thing and then there was quite a lot of excitement around that and then at the same time, someone, a different production company, commissioned me to write my mum's a twat as a TV thing, and so the stuff I learned in the Channel 4 thing, I then did with them, and then we've just had the first episode, they commissioned me to write the first episode, i just finished the seventh draft on of that, and now, yeah, they're like sending it out to TV directors that we've gone through and liked together. It may or may not become something, who knows, the thing I have learned about TV is, it seems like it is actually very hard to get stuff made. But, yeah, it's been really exciting. And because My Mum's a Twat is a monologue, that process obviously made me write dialogue because I'm like, I am not a writer. Oh, but maybe I will write a bit of dialogue for this purpose. But it kind of taught me that.
1: You're a writer now. So there. Anushka, your play, My Mum's a Twat, is on at Summerhall daily at 5.30 from July the 31st to 25th, but not on the 12th and 9th.